everyone, and welcome to another episode of Lords of Limited. My name is Ben Warney, and for the second time in our podcast history, Lord Tupperware will not be joining me on the line. Ethan Sachs is out of commission for the moment, so we've got in special guest Carl, aka Two Duck Cubed, to help us out on Lords of Limited. Welcome, Carl. Good to be back. Yeah, good to have you back. You were outstanding last time we had you on the podcast in defense of data, and I love talking to you. So when I knew Ethan wasn't going to be able to be here, you were the first person I reached out to. Very glad to have you on the podcast. And since we recorded with you, you're now like a pro tour, what are they called? Set championship competitor, yeah? I am, yes. I, I played that earlier December. I got to uh, play against some of the best in the world. I held my own. I went eight and seven. It was a, it was a really cool experience. Very cool. So are you a New Year's goal person? Any goals for 2022, magic related or otherwise? I stepped on the scale this morning and was about five pounds heavier than I've ever been in my life. And so I think the sedentary lifestyle is getting to me a little bit. Um, While on an absolute basis, not the end of the world, uh, definitely tells me that I need to work towards the physical side of my health again. Now that we're all here and working from home in the middle of the pandemic, definitely something I need to pay attention to more. On the magic side, I just want to keep being active in the community, keep building what I started in 2021, where I, you know, pretty much... <laughs> And and I I was actually just recently on uh, Cortical's Limited Level Ups podcast here last week, and I I talked about something similar, but I had zero Twitter followers at the beginning of 2021. Since then, I've got to be active in the community. I've got to you know, play in events. I've got to go on podcasts. I've started my own podcast, Mystical Dispute with Garrett Gardner. I've met like 40 people that I now consider very good friends that I didn't even know at the beginning of, of 2021. It's been a whirlwind year from a magic perspective in that regard. Played in my first, you know, pro tour, whatever, whatever they're called these days. So I would just want to keep that momentum going forward and enjoying myself in the magic community space. Yeah, it's awesome. Really enjoyed you on Limited Level Ups, and I've been loving Mystical Dispute. If anybody in the Lords of Limited audience is looking for another podcast for their life, it's like 15, 20-minute long episodes, and you go really deep dive on individual cards. So great podcast, would highly recommend checking it out. So without further ado, we're going to get into the episode here where you and I are going to talk about locking in your archetype in draft, when to do that, why to do that. This is a tough part of navigating a draft, and I think a really important part there comes a time when you're just kind of past the point of no return. You have to say, yep, I'm drafting green, red, come what may. So we're going to help you dial in on when that is. But before we get into any of that, we've got a few housekeeping things to take care of. First, we want to talk about the Patreon, patreon.com slash Lords of Limited. That's where you can go if you want to give back to the show or if you just want to be part of a great limited community. You know, maybe you've got some goals in the new year to get better at magic. I am 100% confident that if you want to get better at magic in 2022, Lords of Limited Discord is the place to be. There's always wonderful discussion going on in there about the current limited format. And if you've got questions about anything or you want to post a picture of your deck and get some feedback or maybe post a deck that didn't go so well and get some feedback on that, you're going to find people there that love magic and they want to talk to you about magic. Highly recommend checking out patreon.com slash Lords Limited if you want to become part of our community. There's a bunch of different reward tiers there. I'm not going to go into it. But one of the things is if you join at any dollar amount, Uh, You get access to Lords of Limited Discord, and we shout you out the first time that you join the Patreon. So we want to welcome our new Lords of Limited patrons. Shout out to Devin, Sasha, DJ, Noel, Jameson, and Simon. Thank you very, very much for your support, and we look forward to getting better at magic with you in 2022. Show is also brought to you by Channel Fireball, channelfireball.com. Best place to go for anything and everything you need Magic the Gathering related. Innistrad double feature coming up rapidly around the corner with gorgeous black and white versions of the cards from Crimson Vow and Midnight Hunt. So if that's your jam and you want some black and white paper cards, if you're interested in pre-ordering that, make sure you head over to the Channel Fireball Marketplace. You can support your LGS potentially or someone else's LGS potentially while you pre-order and make sure that you use the code LOL for any shopping that you do on the Channel Fireball Marketplace to let them know that we sent you over there. In addition to that, Kamigawa Neon Dynasty is going to be coming up right around the corner, so make sure that you're looking out for pre-orders from Channel Fireball for that as well. All right, that's going to do it for all the housekeeping stuff, Carl. Let's get into talking about locking in your archetype. Rock and roll. All right, so here's my grand picture. Let's see if you can follow along with this, and if it doesn't make sense to you, maybe we can clarify it for the listeners at home. 
here's kind of what I'm picturing for when to lock in your draft archetype. So this is kind of how it works in my head. If you can picture one of those old timey balance scales, like literally it's on the card balance, you know, the weighted scales that you put something on one scale, it drops down and the other one raises up. If you can picture a scale like that with 15 different scales on it, each one of those scales representing a color or a color pair. So each of the five individual colors and then the 10 color pairs. And every card you add to a scale of a color or a color pair makes it more likely that you're going to eventually end up locking in either that specific color or that specific archetype or color pair. So for example, your first pick is Flame Blessed Bolt in Crimson Vow. You stick that in the red scale, boom, the red scale tips down a little bit, the rest of the scales tip up a little bit. You're more likely to draft red at that point than you are the other colors. Does that make sense? That makes sense. I think, and then as the draft goes on, pick two, pick three, you keep adding cards. So let's say you've got that Flame Blessed Bolt that you put in the red pile. And let's say pick two, you get a pretty weak pack that has maybe something like a Wandering Mind in it. And so that's the best card. You take that, boom, you plop that in the blue-red scale. So that puts a little extra weight on the red scale, right, where you've already got the Flame Blessed Bolt, and then its own blue-red weight, and then maybe a little bit of weight in blue, and then pick three, you take a Dormant Grove out of the pack that's the best card in the pack, and then you've got that in the green scale. And you're just trying to, as you navigate the draft, place cards on these various scales until you hit a tipping point for either A, a color. That's usually how it goes, right? You lock in a color first, and then after you lock in that color, you're trying to lock in what other color you want to pair with it to find a color pair. Or maybe you just right off the bat, you know, take red card, green card, red card, green card, and boom, you're locked into red green all of a sudden early in the draft. This is, I think, the quintessential inner monologue that you're having with yourself as you're drafting, right? Is how far have these scales tipped in one direction or another? You know, even going further, trying to read signals is what's likely to come my direction and what can I potentially add to the scale in future picks as the draft goes along? Right. That's an even more complex layer, right? There's future implied value by getting past a really good card of another color. So basically, in my head, we've got these scales, right? And then you've got cards that are at a replacement level, C or lower, which add almost no weight to the scale. So if you're filler type cards, replacement level cards, basically no way to the scale unless you start to get a bunch of them, right? They start to matter once you get deeper into a color and you have six, seven, eight replacement level cards that you're potentially thinking about playing. Hopefully you're not playing that many replacement level cards, but even C plus type cards don't add much weight to the scale. Cards that are at the B level really start to tip the scale. And then cards that are at the A level, you know, your Dreadfast Demons, your Hullbreaker Horrors of the World, they tip the scale enough that maybe you've locked in another color pair, but boom, you get a Hullbreaker Horror and you're jumping ship and trying to draft blue. Like they add a boatload of weight to the scale. I think Hullbreaker Horror in particular is is a very, very heavy individual. Uh, and and it, is, <laughs> it is tipping that scale mightily. It is a large looking crustacean, right? It is. So just in general, if you've got that analogy in your head, that's kind of how I approach it in draft. And maybe it's a different way for you. How do you kind of feel out when to lock in a color for yourself? So I think, you know, I, I, I got to keep up my image as data guy, right? So I got to go somewhat (laughs) mathematical with with this concept. And I think that it's very similar to the scale concept that you're talking about. But obviously, there's a deck building element, I'm going to set the deck building element aside, because, you know, especially early on in a draft, you're not really building a deck, you're putting strong cards together, and then working towards building a deck. But I think the way that I'm thinking about it is, I'm trying to maximize kind of that value above replacement that I'm going to have by the end of the draft. We're saying the same thing in maybe slightly different ways here, but to your point, right? If I get a Hullbreaker Horror, that card in and of itself is way, way, way above a replacement level card. And then a card like Wandering Mind, if you're in blue-red, is going to be pretty far above um, that replacement level. And then you've got your replacement level stuff that like, okay, you can just replace with anything and it's not really going to make that much of a difference. You know, whether you're taking a 23rd style pick or maybe a 24th style pick, like they're they're all close in, in the grand scheme of things. Yeah, 100%. But then the thing that you're trying to balance there is, okay... What is actually the likelihood that I play this particular card in my deck versus the value that it would provide if I play it in my deck? And so you've got some sort of like probabilistic weighting, uh, you know, wins above replacement type concepts in there with a first pick gold card. For example, that's the that is a the perfect example of, OK, 
I could take this first play gold card that's really strong, but what is the chance that I end up playing it within my deck? Or if I do take this and try to lock into that particular gold color pair, maybe I'm missing future value by restricting myself from adding those um, really strong cards in a different color or a different color pair further down the line. Yeah, that makes total sense to me. Is there any merit in your mind? It sounds like from what you're talking about just there that you're maybe a little reticent to take gold cards early. Is there any merit to the idea or the thought of you take that gold card, boom, you plop it in the scale per my analogy, and then you forget about it and you just draft like normal. And if it works out to where you can play that gold card, great. But if it doesn't, like if you get some weight in some other scales, you're fine abandoning it and moving on to something else. Yeah, 100%. And and I think that is that math problem that you're trying to do in your head early on, right? Because you, you could certainly abandon it. And if that gold card is so much better than every other card in the pack, it's very likely going to be that it's worth taking that and speculating and saying, you know, I'm going to take this and hope that I end up in that gold color pair because it's so good. And if I can play it, it's going to be amazing. But if it's not because it's four times more value above replacement in my analogy than any other card in the pack, So I just have to be 25% plus to play this card, and I'm going to maximize my total value that I'm getting out of that. Now, I'm saying this is a very mathematical concept. Obviously, there's no actual math that you're doing in a draft. This is all like head math for me. I think it's, again, very similar to your scales analogy in this particular uh, situation and just applied slightly differently. Yeah, cool. So in a big picture sense, why are we locking in an archetype or a color? For me... It's when I hit enough of a power threshold combined with enough cards in a color or color pair. So I think in general, you're better off if you lock in a single color before a color pair, right? Because that lets you sort of bob and weave, as we like to say on the podcast, between you know multiple other colors. So let's say you lock in green. Then you can try to decide, well, am I green, red, or green, blue? And you can often tow that line pretty deep into a draft whereas if right off the bat you know you take red card green card red card green card red card green card and you've got three of each you're pretty locked into red green at that point and it's hard to get off of it so in general try to lock in one color first but then also there just is that equation of wins above replacement right that's like a baseball stat war i don't know anything about baseball other than that war is a baseball stat are you a baseball guy Yeah, I'm a sports guy. And I mean, the sports analysis guy, I know that's going to come as a surprise to you. Um, (laughs) But but yes, I I love that kind of stuff. So what is war in baseball? Like, how does it work? Do you know? Yeah, war is is wins above replacement. And, you know, it's an assessment of a particular player. And, um, you know, there's Stats that go behind determining, they'll they'll look at hitting for average, running the bases. There's some stats to try to quantify defense. And it's basically saying, okay, this player versus a replacement level player. So if there's an injury and you need to go to the waiver wire, you need to go to the minor leagues and, and pick somebody up. What's the replacement level player going to look like? And then I'm going to compare the individual that you're judging with the war to that player. Let's take a, a seven war player, which is going to be some of the best of the best in baseball. That means that on average, having that particular player on your team is going to generate seven more wins than if that player were instead a a replacement level player. So like your Mike Trouts uh, of the world would be like a seven war player. And that's really good. That means instead of if your team was otherwise going to be 500, now now you're going to be seven games above 500. So Mike Trout is dread feast demon is what you're telling me. Yes, perfect analogy. Or yes. wedding announcement, rather. <laughs> yeah, uh, it, it's probably wedding announcement because he's definitely sleek and multifaceted and can do everything in a game. So I, I think, <laughs> I think, which is exactly what wedding uh, wedding announcement is, you know, glorious anthem and, and ancestral recall, or it's glorious anthem and you know get three one ones. So that that, that that's a, I think that's a good good comparison for Mike Trout. Sweet. Yeah, I was actually just recently thinking about exactly that. And I just sort of had this epiphany today, literally, when I was thinking about this episode and writing an article for Channel Fireball, that replacement level cards are just the new unplayables, right? Like your goal during a draft, and this is sort of what you were talking about with wanting to end up with the most powerful cards possible. I think your goal at the end of a draft should be to have as few replacement level cards in your deck as possible, right? And it doesn't always quite work straight that way because you have to have a curve and you have to have some interaction and that sort of thing. So maybe you're going to play replacement level cards to fill out your curve. But in general, if you could just have the most powerful cards in your pile, you're going to do a lot better. 
Yeah, absolutely. And especially when you've got a lot of disparity between the top uncommons and the rares and, and the mythics as well between just a base level common, it's really important to try to just maximize the number of those strong cards in your deck. Well, and we have access to that information on 17 lands, right? 17 lands essentially shows you the win percentage above replacement-ish, kind of? It pretty much does. And, you know, you can take, you know, the average 17 lands user tends to win about 55% of their games in, in best of one. And so, you know, when you're looking at a bunch of commons that are, you know, 54, 55, 56, okay, that's fine. That's a essentially replacement level you might even go a little bit lower than that since that's the average win rate so maybe you're more talking about 53 percent as kind of replacement level in your 23rd pick type of a thing that you're going to put in your deck and then you know the top uncommons are like 63 percent and the top rares are 70 percent so messing around with whether you've got a one more 54 percenter versus 53 percenter versus trying to give yourself a chance to play all your 65 and 70 percenters, you want to skew towards the latter. And again, you don't need to just take that as a, you know, win rate is everything comment as much as a way to say you want to skew towards getting as much of the really strong cards in your deck as possible, whether you call those 65 or 70 percenters or whether you call those B pluses or A minuses or A pluses. It doesn't matter. You're just trying to maximize the number of strong cards in your deck. Right. hundred percent. So you know, you have to know all this stuff, like the value of the cards compared to all the other cards to know when and how and why to lock in your archetype. But there's just so much that you need to know. But zooming out to archetypes and how to lock them in and when to lock them in, just in general, as far as when to lock in an archetype, I think a good rule of thumb, if you're struggling with this concept, would be to try to lock in your archetype by early in pack two at the latest. And the exception to that would be if you've managed to lock in a color early on that's super open, so you've got deep into blue and you've got eight, nine blue playables heading into pack two, then you can sort of say, okay, I'm playing blue. I'm 100% about that. You know, my blue scale has tipped all the way down. And then I'm trying to figure out whether I'm going to be blue white or blue red throughout maybe even the rest of the draft. That's something that is pretty common. Ben, could you maybe expand on that? What do you think the pros and cons are of trying to lock in on a particular color early on versus maybe locking in on an archetype early on. Yeah, I think there's pros and cons to both, right? I think in general, my tendency as a drafter is to overly navigate and overly being willing to abandon things and pivot and things like that. Because I think that's what's interesting about draft and appealing to me is trying to read the signals and find out, quote unquote, what I'm supposed to be doing in my seat. But I've also come to the conclusion that my best decks and my best drafts are when I don't have to do that sort of thing. Like if I don't have to pivot, that's oftentimes mm -hmm. when you end up with the best deck because you just started drafting some good cards and then you continue to get past good cards in those colors. So I think outside of locking in a color individually, let's just look archetype wise. If you lock in an archetype early, I think you're going to be able to pick up more niche cards for that archetype more aggressively. So maybe you're going to have more options about how to build your deck. Or if you're playing best of three, you're going to have a deeper sideboard. And another benefit of that is you're not going to waste high picks on cards of colors that you're not going to play. So if you early on have decided I'm red blue and you're only taking red and blue cards, you're going to be spending picks on cards that you're very likely to end up with in your main deck. Whereas if you spend all of pack one derping around, you know, and you end up with five cards of five different colors and five picks, you've wasted some high picks on cards, especially after the power level of packs is going to drop, right? That's a problem in Val, I think. And you were alluding to Midnight Hunt and Val on recent episodes of your podcast, and you talked about it a little bit with Court of Calls, too. Like, it's hard in formats where the power level drops off significantly to get rewarded for reading signals right because you're less likely to get paid off by commons because the commons aren't as important as the uncommons and rares i really enjoyed your rare rant on mystical <laughs> dispute <laughs> i feel similarly you know sometimes you gotta just let it all out but yeah so i think there is some benefit there to locking in early but then the con of that is you know let's say you're pack one early on you lock in red green but you incorrectly lock in red green in pack three, if your neighbor next to you is playing red green and passing to you, 
you just get terrible cards in pack three. So you're it's a little bit of risk reward. It's beneficial if you read it correctly and that is the open thing. But if you get deep into an archetype and you lock it in early, you don't have a lot of flexibility if you realize, oh, shoot, this isn't actually what I'm supposed to be drafting, right? There's a little bit of risk reward there. Yeah, I think. And, you know, going back specifically to your red, green, red, green example, there could be a specific decision in that pack where maybe you've got, let's say you've, you've taken three strong green cards and, and one strong red card so far. And that fifth pick, the best card in the pack is a red card, but maybe there's a serviceable green card. Okay. Taking that serviceable green card is not going to be potentially as strong by the end of the draft, but you're more likely to have a kind of green locked in with that particular pick. You take the stronger red card, it definitely is better for you if you end up red green, but maybe you lock yourself more into those two particular colors. So the upside is probably higher for taking the red card. The downside is probably lower. Towing the line and taking those green cards does have that advantage of maybe another color opens up later in pack one or, or beginning of pack two, and you get rewarded with some really strong cards in a different color later on. Whereas if you take the red card, now you're going to have to either abandon your red cards or your green cards to go into that third color. It's a constant battle and a constant scale exercise as as you you sort through these concepts. And what do you think is the most likely to happen as you move forward? Yeah, absolutely. And so what you're talking about there is locking in later, right? So if you get deeper into one color, there are advantages to that too, right? You get to increase the chance that you're going to see good cards and have the ability to pick those good cards in packs two and packs three. But the, the disadvantage to that is you often end up spending high picks on cards that aren't going to end up in your main deck. Yeah, exactly. And I think every single person listening to this episode right now has had that situation where they're trying to decide if maybe they stay more open or stay locked in and you you make the decision and then it comes back to bite you, right? Um, maybe, you, <laughs> yes. maybe, maybe you don't take that strong red card in that spot and red-green ends up being the most thing ever and you, you give up on a great red card by the end of the draft. Conversely, maybe you end up taking the strong red card. You kind of try to lock yourself into red-green and then all of a sudden blue opens up like the parting of the Red Sea in pack two. And every single pick, you're like, well, maybe I'm going to take the blue card because it looks really open, but <laughs> ah, I'm going to I'm going to stay with red green because I'm I'm kind of committed to it at this point. And then just like hit after hit after hit in blue. But as you go further down, it becomes less and less correct to take the blue cards because you're more and more locked into red green as you go along and you just kick yourself every single pack as the blue <laughs> cards keep coming and coming and coming. And, you know, that's going to happen. It's unavoidable. It's happened to everybody that's listening to this before. It's going to happen to everybody that's listening to this again. But you're trying to avoid it. Of course, that increases the importance of trying to read signals and getting good at reading signals. Yes, I feel like you have sat in on a number of my recent drafts, Carl. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I, I was I was watching your draft today on stream where you didn't know what color pairs you were at the end of three packs. So, <laughs> yeah, that was rough with the Ben Warney waffle emote coming soon. There you go. I like it. And if we talk about all this archetype locking in, how does that fit in with a weighted scale analogy for me? So you're picking the best card of the pack. You're adding it to the scale. And then I think once you feel like you've seen enough cards or you have either a density of cards or enough of a power level, you come to a point where you say, boom, I'm locking in color X, let's say blue. And then after you lock in that color, you're supposed to hedge on powerful cards of other colors. You're trying to identify those cards that have war, the winds above replacement, you know, maybe in white, maybe in red, maybe in green. It doesn't matter. You can toe the line between all of the color pairs if you're deep enough into blue. And I think at the beginning of the draft, if you can just picture all those scales being weighted equally, and maybe even some of them are weighted heavier than others due to preconceived notions about the format, right? Maybe you know that red is great in Val, so you want to try to end up in red. So you put a little weight already in that red scale. And maybe the green scale, you know green's weak, so you that tips up. Or, you know, once the format swings and everybody knows red is good, maybe you're trying to stay away from red a little bit and you're more willing to draft green. So you can even kind of pre-weight the scales a little bit or in Vow specifically right now. Like personally, I'm avoiding black like the plague. I think it's overdrafted quite a bit. And I don't think the payoff is really there for 
as much as I expect to have to fight with people over black. So again, to me, that scale analogy really helps keep things clear for myself. And then once I really feel like, okay, I'm at this point, I've got to lock this in, being willing to pull the trigger and just say, okay, come what may, I am playing at least this one color to know that. That's really powerful. The format differences that you talk about are so important there too. You talked about avoiding black in Vow right now. AFR, I think, was a format where black red was just so strong that you know your scales may have been tipped heavily in the black red direction, or I think especially especially black early on. And so I think you saw a lot of strong players taking cards like shambling gassed pick one over a blue rare in that format right because just um <laughs> the, wanted to avoid blue and black was great and so it was much more likely you were going to play that black card at the end of it so let's start the scale tipped in one direction early on and then i think another thing that really impacts that decision point in the format is how easy it is to splash especially the colorless splashing is it easier to maybe get away with taking an off-color bomb early because you know that there's going to be splashing options like jack-o'-lantern in mid or you know dual lands maybe in call time vow really doesn't have a ton of other than evolving wilds which is just one card there's not a ton of great you know multi-color splashing options outside of green and so it puts a little bit more pressure on towing that line at different points in the draft yeah absolutely i think in general 17 lands for me, you have sort of pushed me into 17 lands world. I don't use it as much as everyone else, but you can consider me a convert as well. Just looking at splashing in general, like as a little side trip here, how much less you win when you splash and play three colors compared to a straight two color archetype is mind boggling. It is, although counterpoint, you were talking about that dynamic you had where your best drafts are the one where you're able to lock into a particular color pair and don't have to tow that line. And maybe the, the not as strong drafts are the one where you're towing that line. Well, I think that there's a little bit of bias in that one because when you're in the two colors and no splashing, there's a much, much higher chance that that particular color pair was just wide open for you. And when you're splashing, it's much more likely you had a really challenging draft. So I don't think that necessarily means that, you know, if you've got a really strong color pair already and you get one off color bomb and you decide to splash that, that still could be the correct decision point. But it's obviously something that you, you know, you want to avoid if possible. But I do think there's a little bit of bias in that that splash win rate thing. So just keep that in mind as you think about that and whether it's correct to splash or not. Yeah, that definitely makes sense to me. I just think in general, though, I think about splashing from when I was learning to play or younger or maybe less good than I am now, splashing was a benefit, right? I got to put this powerful card in my deck that wasn't colors I was planning yep. to play, and I knew how to build a mana base, and I knew I wanted my three pips, and I had my three pips, and I still had my eight sources and my other two colors. But even if you do all that stuff right... It's still not an ideal situation, I think. And I don't know that I really had internalized that quite as much. Uh, certainly the ideal situation is being able to play two colors, especially when, you know, in a lot of recent sets, there are strong themes that exist within particular two color pairs. Just being able to maximize those themes in a draft is generally going to be your best bet. Yeah. All right. So locking in your archetype. What do you need to know? We've been sort of dancing around this, but I kind of want to run down a list here of stuff. So if you could help me out with this, I think the first thing that you need to know is just having a mental list of the power rankings of the archetypes and the likelihood that they are going to be open. So that's kind of what you were talking about in AFR. You know, you can really expect blue to be open, but is it bad enough that you want to go into it still? Probably not. But in something like Vow you can expect blue and green to be relatively open right now. And I think they are good enough to go into. I think an open green deck is better than a contested red black deck in Vow. I think in general, the open deck is going to be your best bet in Vow, regardless of the color pair. Certainly, I think red is probably still the strongest color, but the power level disparity is not nearly what we've seen in something like AFR. 
Yeah. And I think it's going to vary format to format, right? But you need to know whatever those desirable archetypes are for a given format. And you need to be aware of whatever the trends in the format are. Black Red was pretty open at the beginning of the format. Not open so much now. You can still get really good Blue Red, Blue White decks, which is odd because those are some of the winningest decks. It always seems like the format trends in the direction of the winningest decks, but it's always just slower than it probably should be. So I, I and I think that's, you know, now that we've got 17 lands available as we can always see those dynamics. And, you know, there's even a page on 17 lands where you can see how pick orders trend over time for different colors of cards. And when a color is winning, the format trends towards it, but it's super slow and it happens, you know, tenths of picks by tenths of picks up for the the, the stronger cards and, and, you know, vice versa for the weaker cards. So it, it is, I agree, it is still surprising that there's <laughs> decks as strong as those particular decks are open. But, you know, you do have to keep in mind that not everybody playing a draft on MTG Arena is listening to Lords of Limited, right? Some people are, are are doing their thing and enjoying themselves and not deep into, you know, limited improvement, I think, like a lot of the folks that are listening to this pod right now. Right. Those civilized people that have other lives and do one or two <laughs> drafts a week. That seems nice. The non-degenerates. Yes. <laughs> so, you need to have that mental list of those archetypes to know what you need to do to lock in your archetype correctly. I think you need to have a mental list of the cards that are above replacement level in their color. We've talked about that a lot. You need to have a mental list of cards that pull you into their color and how strongly they pull you into their color. That's where like the limited resources grading scale, identifying a card as a B minus or a B is super important, right? Because that's how you know that you're supposed to take that card as a likely high win above replacement level compared to, you know, a common that's a C or whatever. It would be a big mistake, I think, early on in a draft to take a card that is graded as a C above a B minus, no matter the circumstances almost. I think this is something you see of all strong limited players is they've got a mental picture of what are the strong cards? What's pulling me into those colors? Exactly as you just described. And especially towards the middle and the end of the draft are essentially able to do those calculations at the background. Now, early on in a format, that can be a lot more kind of front of brain manual calculation trying to figure it out. Like, hey, I haven't played, you know, this particular card yet. Is this good? You're trying to figure out of the spot. You're like reading the card, trying to figure out what it does, trying to think about the rest of the format. There's so much information that's coming at you in the span of, you know, the one minute you have to make your first pick and, you know, even less than that as it goes on. But the sooner you can get to the spot in a format where you've got either that mental list of what the strong cards are or, you know, you're at least you're able to use your resources kind of on the spot to try to to figure that out the better you're going to be able to see the packs. You're going to be able to see just the overall value of the cards coming towards you. And it's also going to help you improve your ability to read the signals coming down. Because even if you don't take a blue card, for example, you might've seen there's three strong blue cards because you've got that mental rank in your head. And you know that blue might generally be open in the packs that are coming because it was open in the particular pick that you're looking at. Definitely. And I think early on in the format is particularly dangerous because if your list, like I always have a list at this point now, but if your list is wrong, it's disastrous, right? Like, so if you're losing in a format early on, there's a high chance that cards you think are good are not as good as you think they are and cards that you aren't valuing, you should be valuing higher. And that's where like having friends to talk to, or if you don't have a network of people that are as obsessed with MTG as you are, that's where 17 lands is super helpful, right? Because you can go on and check your baselines against what, you know, the aggregate data says on 17 lands. It can shorten the cycle time on, you know, developing that list of the strong cards for you, especially it's so valuable early in the format because you don't have to do the mental calculus right away. You can go to 17 lands and like, okay, what are the strong cards? These are the strong cards. I'm going to try to draft those cards. And you can work off of that. And then as you start to, to build your understanding of the format, you can start to maybe develop your own judgments past just what the data is telling you. And hey, maybe this card is stronger in this particular spot or this card is stronger in this other spot. But you can start from the 17 lands to build that mental list, to, to hone your intuition and it, it just reduces the cycle time in which you can learn a format. At least it does for me. 
Yeah, I mean, I don't particularly use it that way, but I think I can see that it would be super helpful for someone that either doesn't have their own list or just wants to get a list quickly. I mean, it definitely gets you a lot of information in a very short amount of time on the website for sure. So once you've got that list of all those cards, I think the other thing that's really important to be able to do is identify cards that are highly correlated to the success of their archetype. So something like Brinecomer in Azorius or Bloodtithe Harvester in Red Black. Those are the types of cards that are going to have a really high win rate and then are a little risky because they're gold, right? But you just take them and you plop them in their weighted scale in their color pair. And then ideally... You're going to try to draft that color pair, but if you can't, you move off it. But you need to know that those cards are worth taking a chance on. Their win above replacement, if you end up in blue-white or if you end up in red-black, is high enough that it's worth the risk of not playing the card at all. Yeah, that's a great point. And that goes, honestly, especially for the monocolored cards, even past the gold cards, is what archetypes are they going to be the strongest in? You know, going back to AFR, something that comes top of mind is Deadly Dispute versus Precipitous Drop where Precipitous Drop was generally stronger in a black-white deck, Deadly Dispute was stronger in a black-red deck. So sure, you could play either of those cards in the opposite of those two color pairs, right? You could play Deadly Dispute black-white, you could play Precipitous Drop in black-red, but it was going to be strongest if you landed in that particular archetype. Yeah, absolutely. I'm struggling to think of a particular example like that in Crimson Vow. Well, I think something like Ancestral Anger in blue-red, you know, that's definitely going to be best in a blue-red deck or a deck with Kessig Flame Breather in it to maximize, you know, the small edges you get from Cantorbringer Spells or something like Snarling Wolf is really only going to get played in red-green wolf aggro. But there's types of cards like that in every format. And on Lords of Limited, we've taken to calling them secret gold cards, but just one color cards that excel in an archetype or two and then knowing what those archetypes are for sure. Yeah, secret gold cards. That's the exact correct way to put it. And 17 lands can do that for you too, right? You can filter by color pair as well. It definitely can. And you'll see that come through very clearly. You know, there'll be certain commons that are way up high in a particular color pair, and then you switch to a different one and they drop to like the the 20th best common. So another valuable resource right there. So as we dive into big data, 17 lands, all that sort of stuff, Is there any merit in your mind in trying to assign win rate ranges to like grade levels as per the LR scale? Like a card needs to be winning at a 59.5% clip to be a B minus ish card that really starts to pull you into its color or something that's at 55% or less is a C or a C minus. Does that have any relevancy to you as a data person? It's certainly something that you can do. I think think that both of those concepts are essentially trying to do the same thing, right? You could mash them together. And I'm sure if you, you know, took a pick order list versus a, you know, 17 lands win rate list, and you kind of looked at them, they're going to have a lot of correlation, right? Honestly, it would be a, it would be a pretty cool uh, visual, right? To like have a graph where you did like, you know, D through A, and then you have game in hand win rate uh, on the different axis. You've got like an X and a Y axis and you kind of correlate them. I guarantee you it's going to be a scatter plot that generally goes in the the northeast direction. As you get the better cards, they're going to have the higher grades and the higher win rates. Whether you need to like lock in a particular value in a particular color grade, eh, you can. I don't think you need to. Right, because the letter grades are already kind of doing the same thing. They're shortcutting to help you see which cards are better than the other cards. Exactly. Okay, so back to locking in archetypes here. What are some potential signals maybe to lock in an archetype? I think wheeling key role players in a certain archetype in pack one definitely would incentivize me to potentially lock in that archetype. Like, let's say I'm red. I know I'm red and I wheel a Kessig Flame Breather or two. That's going to nudge me towards blue-red spells, right? Because Kessig Flame Breather shines in that archetype. Or maybe I'm blue, I'm deep into blue, and I've got a white card or two, and I wheel a nurturing presence or two in pack one. That's definitely going to nudge me towards blue-white disturb. And that's where knowing those role player type cards and the archetypes they best fit into is really beneficial to you. Because you know, okay, this card came around, so it's likely if other people know this stuff about this card that nobody else is this archetype. So even though those actual cards well Kessig flame breather is a pretty good card but nurturing presence not a great card so normally that wouldn't be much weight in a scale but i think 
if it belongs in an archetype, that could be a nudge towards that certain archetype. Absolutely. And I think that's probably the number one thing that when you're going through the end of a pack, you know, especially picks like nine through the end, that's the exact kind of stuff you want to pay attention to. Even past like the decisions in those picks, still important, but not nearly as important as the first nine picks. But you can gain a ton of information just by understanding which cards are coming back versus which aren't right. More secret gold cards like Hungry Ridge Wolf is maybe an example that the red green archetype may be open versus a belligerent guest. That's the the three two trample, right? Is more likely that that a black red archetype is open. And little pieces of value that you can gain from understanding, you know, where the cards fit, which archetypes they tend to go best in, can help pull you in a particular direction as you go into the later packs. Definitely, and I think even more than that, actual uncommon gold signposts if you get past those late in pack one maybe you see them early in pack two those can be big signals to lock in the archetype i think you have to be careful because it might not necessarily be that that color pair is open you know maybe people are drafting red and blue upstream of you but not red blue so you get past a late wandering mine and you can still end up kind of getting cut but definitely a strong signal that this thing could be open And then the other thing I just want to kind of get out there or throw out there is I think there is a fear of taking gold cards early a little bit because it keeps you less flexible during the draft. And I do think that that's not necessarily true. And I I want to push back against that a little bit because I think if you use this weighted scale analogy and let's say you take a brine comber, pack one, pick one, you dump that in your blue white thing. If you can get into blue or white then you're still not really being punished at all for having the gold card, right? Because you're doing what you would normally try to be doing, right? Which is getting into one color. So let's say you manage to get deep into white, and then you can kind of toe the line between maybe I'm white blue and I get to play this brine comber, or I end up pivoting into white red. So I think as long as you take that gold card, you don't mentally lock yourself into after you take you know a gold card early, okay, I'm drafting X, you merely put it in the thing and then try to steer towards one of those two colors. I think that's a great way to leave yourself the potential to play that gold card while also mitigating the risk of the thing you're doing is maybe potentially going to get cut. I totally agree, especially in situations where the next best card in the pack is quite a bit lower in power level than the gold card. I think the counterpoint to that is if you've got a strong monocolored card, maybe even if it's you know, second best card in the pack to the gold card that still can potentially keep you more open. So it's always a balance. Yeah, makes sense. All right. We've talked about this in theory quite a bit here. You want to dive into some draft logs and take a seat at the round table here and put this into practice? Let's do it. All right. So first draft up here, pack one, pick one. You see the following cards as options. Commons, there's a bunch of junk, nothing in consideration. Best uncommon, Markov Walter. We've got that gold card action. Two red, white for the one, three flying haste at the beginning of combat on your turn. Up to two target creatures you control get plus one, plus oh until end of turn. And then no other real uncommons in consideration. And then the rare, boom baby, dream shackle geist, book it. One blue, blue, three, one flyer at the beginning of combat on your turn. You choose one, tap target creature, or target creature doesn't untap during its controller's untap step. I mean, I might take this card if it was a 3-1 flyer with no text out of this pack. Um, So the fact that it's got insane text makes this uh, about as slam dunk of a pick as you can get. Right. So you toss that in the blue scale and you're trying pretty hard to be blue at this point, right? That's significant weight in the scale. You want to play that card and then you want to help get yourself to a density of blue cards to be able to lock in blue. So with that in mind, pack one, pick two, see the following cards as options. There's Traveling Minister, my boy. White for the 1-1. One, one. Tap, target creature gets plus 1, plus 0 oh until end of turn. You gain a life. There's Lantern Bearer. Blue for the 1-1 one, one flyer with Disturb 2 and a blue to turn it into an enchantment to give a creature plus 1, plus 1 and flying. There's a Braid. 1 and a red for the instant. Choose 1, deals 3 to a creature or destroy an artifact. And then in the Uncommons, there's Infestation Expert, four and a green, three, four when ETBs are attacks. You make a one, one green insect creature token. On the backside, if it's night, it's a four, five that makes two insect tokens. And then there's also a Skull Scob, if you potentially wanted to dip your toe into the gold card waters. Blue, black for the two, two. Exploit, whenever a creature you control exploits a non-token creature, create a two, two black zombie creature token. So what's your thought process as you're starting to navigate through these? Uh, for me, when I'm looking at this pack, I see a lot of great cards that are equal-ish on power level. I think I would tend to pack one, pick one, have 
a braid ranked as the best card in the pack, but not by a lot ahead of Lantern Bearer and Traveling Minister. And then I think all three of those cards are cheap enough and powerful enough and in better colors that I would have them ranked ahead of Infestation Expert. I totally agree. I think I like Infestation Expert, but I do think green is generally a bit of a weaker color. I think a braid is the best card in the pack. So I'm I'm with you there. And then given that similarity in power level of the other cards like you described, it leads me pretty strong towards Lantern Bearer in this pack. That's what I think as well, because you have the Dream Shackle guy. So pack one, pick one, though. I think it's interesting, right? You could make a case for avoiding red, maybe, if you really thought red was overdrafted or you really liked Minister or Lantern Bearer. Like, I think any of those four cards is maybe reasonable pack one, pick one. Infestation Expert, a little less so than the three commons. But with the Dream Shackle Geist, I think it's a pretty clear Lantern Bearer here. Agreed. So boom, we plop that in the blue scale. It's tipping a little deeper. Pack one, pick three. See the following cards as options. In the commons, there's Flame Bless Bolt, best common in the set. Red, instant, deals two damage to a creature or planeswalker. If that creature or planeswalker would die this turn, you exile it instead. Best blue common is not worth noting. Something like a Selhofen Tumor or an Alchemist Retrieval. And then in the uncommons, there's a Diver Scob. Three blue blue for the three five with exploit. Whenever it exploits a creature, target creature's owner puts it on the top or bottom of their library. What do you like here? So I look at this pack and three cards really stand out to me. The Flame Blast Bolt, the Diver Scab or Scob, Scab Scob. Um, <laughs> I say Scob, but tomato, tomato. We'll go with Scob. And then um, to a lesser extent, the Falcon Wrath Celebrants. I think that if this were pack one, pick one, you've got a really interesting discussion between the Diver Scob and the Flame Blast Bolt. You know, when you go and you look at the 17 lands data, it's got these cards having very similar win rates, in particular in blue-red, which is relevant if you're kind of looking at, you know, potentially blue-red here. They also have very similar win rates in that particular archetype. So power level of those two cards, I think generally in the same ballpark. Obviously, Diver Scob can have more influence in the game as a five drop and is very, very interesting, especially when you're blue-black. But overall, still a strong card, but does push you a little bit in that black direction. So it does have some implications for the rest of the of the draft. Given my first two cards are blue, I'm sticking with the Diver Scob because I think it leaves you very open for the rest of the draft. The Flame Blessed Bull is certainly not something that I would fault somebody for and i again you can make the argument that hey third pick flame blessed bolt and a falcon wrath celebrants in the pack means that there's some potential that red is going to be open coming in our direction for the rest of the pack so like in two like dream shackle geist and lantern bearer are both somewhat low to the ground cards so taking a third low to the ground card is interesting but i like the flexibility of taking the blue card even if it's a blue card that pushes me towards black a little bit out of this pack what do you think ben well, there's a rare and uncommon missing, so there's not hardly anything here signal-wise. So I'm putting almost no Fair. weight on signals with a rare and an uncommon missing. And I think it's interesting. It sounds like you're fairly close on Flame Bless Bolt and Diver Scob pack one, pick one. Like, I'm pretty clearly on Flame Bless Bolt there, just as even if the win rates are similar, it's a one mana card versus a five mana card in a better sure. color, I think. Yeah, I would say I am I would take Flame Bless Bolt, but it's close. Yeah, so for me, it's a bigger gap than that so i actually feel like i'm taking a fair hit here passing flame bless bolt for diver scob and i know diver scob's above replacement level but it's been fairly clunky for me like i don't know what the stats say but my experience with it says that it is just barely above replacement level yes i mean stats have it really really similar to flame bless bolt but again i think that in-game experience is relevant and the type of deck that you're putting in it is relevant and so many other factors are relevant and it can definitely be very, very clunky at times. I mean, you draw that on an empty board and it feels like death. Yeah, so I did end up taking the Diver Scob here because I wanted to get deeper into blue. I wanted to put more weight in that blue scale so that I could lock in blue as a color. And I think if you take Flame Blast Bolt here, all of a sudden you're like drafting blue-red almost. Whereas if you put Diver Scob in your, your blue scale, that's almost enough right there to lock in blue as one of your colors. You don't need many more blue cards if you find a second color that's open, even if you get cut off of blue past this point. 
Diver Scob is, again, somewhat of these, these gold implications, right? It's going to be pretty high above replacement, I think, in a blue-black deck in particular. It's going to be a little bit above replacement in other colors, and it does force you to pick particular cards later in the draft. So you may have to take a Lantern Bearer over a slightly stronger blue uncommon if you get you know far enough along and you've got no fodder for Diver Scob to just make that card work, to make it a little bit better in your deck, right? It does put some constraints on the types of cards you can take in the rest of the deck, but it opens you up to more color pairings rather than just specifically blue-red. Yeah, for sure. All right, so took Diver Scob there. Moving on to pack one, pick four. You see the following cards as options. This one's an interesting pick. There's Wretched Throng, one in a blue for a 2-1. Whenever it dies, you can search your library for a card named Wretched Throng, reveal it, and put it into your hand. There's Kindly Ancestor, two and a white for a 2-3 with lifelink, disturb one and a white. There's also Kessig Flame Breather as the best red card in the pack, one and a red for the 1-3. Whenever you cast a non-creature spell, it deals one damage to each opponent. And then moving on to the uncommons, there's Gutter Skulker, three and a blue for the 3-3, can't be blocked as long as it's attacking alone, and has Disturb for three and a blue to give a creature an enchantment that has that same ability. And then Fleeting Spirit, one and a white for the 3-1, you can pay white, exile three cards from your graveyard to give it first strike until end of turn, and you can discard a card to blink it and return it to the battlefield under its owner's control at the beginning of the next end step. What do you think about the card Gutter Skulker, just in general? I'm medium on it. It's fine. Like, I think it is filler-esque, slightly above filler, and has, like, some unique applications where it can do some things that a filler-level card could not. I think it's certainly at its best in a blue-white deck or a deck that has ways to make large lifelink creatures. Yeah, I'm medium on it in general, I think. It seems like a card that the community has in a lot of different spots. I think some people tend to like this card a a reasonable amount, and some people just avoid it handily. I asked that question because I think your evaluation of this card can really skew the direction that you go in the pack. If you view this as a card that you're trying to avoid putting in your deck, then all of a sudden, your blue options are extremely replacement level. If you view this as a positive, potentially, for a blue deck, it can create maybe a more clear pick. Yeah, I think I view it as potentially slightly positive. I would say the card is situationally powerful, especially in a blue-white deck, yet awkwardly clunky. Like, I'm not excited about it. <laughs> so what do you what do you think are the main options then, Ben? I think this pick is between, for me, Kessig Flame Breather and Gutter Skulker. And I think it's tempting to branch into red with Kessig Flame Breather because I think blue red's a great archetype. There's potentially signals here in that someone has taken a common out of this pack and it seems like that card was a black card. So there's a rare and uncommon and a common missing and the common is black. And we know there's a common of every color in every pack on Arena. I don't know. I I think you could... The upside is higher on Kessig Flame Breather, but you lose a little bit of flexibility over the course of the draft, whereas Gutter Skulker is a fine playable. And I think you could maybe make a case for Kindly Ancestor here as well, if you really like blue-white as an archetype. I agree with that. I think I lean slightly towards the Flame Breather in this pack, because if that blue-red deck ends up opening up, it's going to be pretty strong. And I personally tend to try to avoid gutter skulker in my decks so i think because of that evaluation i lean towards flame breather but again i i think many options are are possible yeah i ended up on the gutter skulker but it was really close pick and i think flame breather is super reasonable there as well so pack one pick five and again after that gutter skulker i am locked into blue so i'm going to be trying to figure out what my second color is and try to take you know, high risk, high reward picks in other colors until we get a definite direction shown to us. And one more comment on that. Even if blue dries up at this particular juncture, you don't really need that many more blue cards to play blue, right? You could get like, you know, first and second picks from pack two and pack three in blue, end up with eight good blue cards, and it's probably going to be enough that your blue cards are still going to be well above average given the, the, the strength of Dream Shacklegeist. So obviously we hope that blue doesn't dry up and that doesn't have to be the case, but there's almost nothing that can push you off of blue at this point, in my opinion, outside of some pretty wild swings in these packs. Yeah, I completely agree. So moving on to pack one, pick five, you would be very happy here. There's another Kessig Flame Breather in the pack. 
at common. And I think that's the only really common worth talking about. And then at the uncommons, there's Vile Spawn Spider, blue green for the two through reach. At the beginning of your upkeep, mill a card. Two blue green tap, sacrifice Vile Spawn Spider, create a 1 1 green insect creature token for each creature card in your graveyard, activate it only as a sorcery. And there's also a Runebound Wolf, which I think in blue red is just a little bit worse than Kessig Flame Breather. So I wouldn't even really be considering that here. So what do you like between Flame Breather and Vile Spawn Spider? I think I'm sticking on Flame Breather. And part of this one for me would come down to the fact that I think Flame Breather's almost more of a like almost more of a signal of blue red potentially being open than the actual gold card here as crazy as that sounds you're trying to play blue red and you're playing flame breather we saw even though there's not a ton of signal value we saw the flame bus bolt we saw a flame breather we saw another flame breather i'm probably leaning in on the flame breather and hoping that that read tells me that i'm going to get some spell related cards that are going to be strong but I do think it's, again, remarkably close. And whichever direction you decide to go between those two cards, I think is completely legitimate. Is that even with taking the Gutter Skulker instead of taking the last Flame Breather? Like yes. you're taking your first Flame Breather over Vile Spawn Spider here. Yes. And that's down to Flame Breather as a card being better than Vile Spawn Spider or your analysis of red as a better color and wanting to set yourself up to get into a better color i think it's blue red versus blue green so we're locked into blue i think blue red decks in general i've had a lot more success with than blue green personally and i i would much rather be blue red than blue green and so taking that and, and specifically flame breather is sometimes unplayable in other color pairs but can still be good if you get the right mix but it's all it's almost always great in blue red yeah that makes total sense i ended up on vile spawn spider here but again Close pick. And I think if you take the first Kessig Flame Breather, you're definitely taking Slam the second dunk, yes. Kessig Flame Breather. And then you're almost at a point where you're willing to lock in blue red that early, right? If you take Flame Breather into Flame Breather, it's not quite lock in time yet, but strong leanings towards blue red at that point. Since the other cards here are just, I mean, essentially filler, either pick you take here is essentially going to be a card where it's going to be great if you end up in those two color pairs and you have the potential to not play it. But there's no other, I mean, you could take a Siphon Essence, I guess, but that's just pretty mopey and pretty replacement level. And I think that either the Vile Spawn Sparter or the Flame Breather are going to be so much better if you end up in that particular color pair. Right. And that's where you really reap the benefits of, okay, I am this color, I've locked it in, and now I get to branch out and really, I'm able to identify those cards that are the wins above replacement cards and then take them where appropriate. So moving on to pack one, pick six, a pretty weak pack. There's no real good blue or red. If you take those two flame breathers, you get to pick up an ancestral anger here for red. Um, after taking vile spawn spider, I snapped up a flourishing hunter. And again, was definitely blue, leaning towards green potentially. Pick seven, picked up a hook hand mariner that led me more towards blue green. Um, and then pick eight, a super weak pack that had a wandering mind in it, which is the one blue red two one flyer. When ETBs, you'll get the top six cards of your library. You may reveal a non-creature, non-land card from among them and put it in your hand. Put the rest on the bottom of your library in a random order. I took that because there was nothing else good in the pack. And the pack rounded out with some blue junkers, nothing particularly exciting. And then in pack two, pick two, we got past a Ruth Tormented Prophet. And that was enough that I was deep enough into blue. I had locked in that one color that I was willing to take a Ruth over something like Hookhand Mariner in green for my deck and then got handsomely rewarded. Pick two, pick three, got past a Voltaic Visionary. Pack two, pick four, got past a Flame Bless Bolt and just rode red the rest of the way out and ended up drafting blue red. So I would say I was blue through pack one, likely to be blue green and then getting past, you know, three or four premium red cards in a row in pack two was enough to let me lock in blue red in pack two there. And can we talk about how important that pack one pick eight wandering mind is? Because obviously you got rewarded, but even if you didn't end up blue red, an apprentice sharpshooter or a massive might or a rural recruit or a siphon essence may or may not even make your deck in may or may not be strong over whatever other card you would end up playing in one of those particular slots. Whereas the wandering mind is fantastic in the blue red deck. So it's a fairly easy speculation in this spot, but just this general concept, especially as you get again towards like pick eight towards the end, I think the number one thing I see in the drafting portion 
as a mistake is not taking these speculative picks late that could end up being really, really good cards if you switch gears. Right. It's a very low opportunity cost, right? Because you're not giving up much. You're giving up a replacement level card that is maybe going to make the cut, maybe not. If it does make the cut, you could probably shove any other common of those colors in that slot, and it's not going to change your deck's overall power level that much. Whereas if you do happen to end up blue-red, which is definitely possible at this point, and even if it were less likely than it is, you still get rewarded so handsomely for picking up the Wandering Mind here that it's worth taking. 100%. And that's where that scale thing, coming back to that, like you just take the Wandering Mind here, you plop it in the blue-red scale. It's not good enough to push you off of blue-green yet. So like in my mind, I'm still blue, probably green. But then all of a sudden, pack two, pick two, you get that Aruth, you plop that in the blue-red scale also. Okay, now I'm kind of like 50-50 split between blue-red and blue-green. Those scales are getting pretty equal there. And then you get that Voltaic Visionary. And then all of a sudden, like, okay, like, I think we're blue-red, you know? And then you get another card, you get that Flame Blast Bolt. Right after pick two, your scales are probably pretty close, and maybe even slightly towards the blue-red after you pick up the Aruth, just because you got past a gold rare, which means that there's maybe more likely that blue-red cards are going to be coming the rest of that pack, but the scales are pretty close, and then boom, like you said, we'll take Visionary. Okay, real good chance we end up blue-red, though you still have some flexibility. Yeah, definitely. So I think that's a good way to try to put that scales analogy into practice. And I think it also works in messier drafts as well, right? Like you can start with, you know, five different cards of five different colors that are all powerful. As long as you're drafting those wins above replacement cards, and then you slowly just, you know, keep adding stuff to the scales until they tip enough to where, okay, boom, I've got either powerful enough cards, or I've got enough cards that I'm going to lock it in. And you just got to make sure that you're tracking and that you know the weight of all those cards that's the hardest part probably is just actually being able to assign whether it's weight putting it in the scale or win percentage value or whatever you want to assign to the card you've got to know and be able to identify that for yourself in the heat of the moment in the draft totally agree all right great place to wrap us up carl thank you so much for guesting and filling in for ethan today where can people find you if they want to get in touch with you you can find me at 2 Cubed on both Twitch and Twitter. That's T-W-O-D-U-C-K-C-U-B-E-D. And you can find my podcast that I do with Garrett Gardner at mysticaldispute.com. Again, as Ben mentioned earlier in the episode, we take one card within a limited format and debate the merits of it. Kind of compact 15-minute episodes, so it's not a huge time investment. Had a lot of fun doing that. Garrett is amazing at what he does. He edits everything. He makes them nice and tight and crisp. And check it out. Would love to be able to grow that podcast here in 2022. Yeah, and if you want some more Ethan, if Ethan has been missing after this week in your content life, he just recently guested uh, on an archetype where they were discussing bombs and Ethan was defending bombs. Although I don't know how or why because Crimson Bow bombs are the worst. He loves them a lot, apparently. Bombs Part 2 is where you can find Ethan's guest appearance on Mystical Dispute. All right. Thank you so much, Carl. And thank you, as always, to Salty Pretzels for our intro and outro music. Make sure you give it a listen. Uh, If you want to get in touch with us, please shoot us an email at lordsalimited at gmail.com. Thank you, as always, to Channel Fireball for sponsoring our podcast, channelfireball.com. Make sure you use code LOL, all caps, when you check out. If you want to know, I don't know what Ethan says here. If you want to know more about our podcast, you can check out everything on lordsoflimited.com. Thank you all so much for listening, and we'll catch you next week, hopefully with Ethan back for another episode of Lords of Limited. Take care, everybody. get into any of that we got to take care of but before we get into any of that we got to take care of some housekeeping stuff patreon i don't know how to oh, i hate doing this <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> Ethan toes alone in this one typically. Yeah, Ethan does all of this. I am at two duck cubed on Twitter. T W O D U C K C U E C U B E D. C U B E D. Spell your own Twitter handle, Carl. And also uh two duck cubed. If you want, do you want to take that well. again? If you don't want that to be in the episode, I, you know, um, let me do it again. Um, yes, <laughs> and you can find me uh, at Tuda Cubed on Twitch as well. Um, I don't know why I said um. That's it. And you've got a podcast, right? Oh God, yes, Jesus Christ. Okay, oh, we just do the whole thing again and like get the right <laughs> intonation and like not screw this up. Goodness gracious, Carl. Okay. All right. Thank you so much, Carl. And thank you, as always, to Salty Pretzels for our intro and outro music. Oh, wait. No, I need to do our plugs. Oh, God. How do I do this without Ethan?